Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Bill Reel's Disciplinary Council. It is today, November 19th, 2018. It is 7 o'clock in the morning, my time, and I am lucky enough to have Bill Reel on the program. He's been very busy over the last several days. Let me just say, first off, good morning to you, Bill, and then I'll set the stage for this discussion. Good morning. Good morning to you, my friend. Are you pretty tired out by now? So um, one of the things we'll probably get into, at least for a moment, is that this process does impose extra trauma. And so um, as as we work through all this, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping okay. Life is Life is good. Um, but I'm beginning to feel that, that this is beginning to kind of present itself in my body. Some people make comments about how because this is something that was expected and not completely out of the blue, that for some reason that that means it should not cause any kind of trauma. But anybody who's had a mother or father or other close family member die from a prolonged illness and the end is not something that was unexpected. In fact, you could see it coming a mile away. And yet when it does happen, finally, even though it was expected, that doesn't mean that you don't feel sadness and loss because of it. Right. Very much the case. Um, I knew this was always a possibility. And those around me in our close circle are constantly asking me and helping me to kind of work through when that day would come, what it would look like. Um, but yes, as time as time gets closer here, certainly beginning to feel some of that. Well, I want to ask you and go back in time with you for a chronology of your contacts with church leaders, both general and local, that in some sense form a framework for what is happening today. Is that okay with you, Bill? That'd be great. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I think most of the people listening know your backstory. They know that you joined the church, I think, when you were 19 years old, that you rapidly ascended the ranks in a relatively small ward out in Ohio to the point where you were ordained a bishop when you were 29 years old, and you served in that capacity for a number of years. It was while you were a bishop, if I recall correctly, that you began to read and study and learn more about church history and discover some things that were troubling to you. Do I have that about right? Uh, close. 17 years old, and yes, uh, halfway through being a bishop, was called at 29, halfway through about 32 years old, is when uh, the proverbial shelf came down. And at that time, you did what I think a lot of people would not do in your situation, and that is that you reached out to people above you, in other words, general authorities above you, to see about getting answers to your questions. Is that correct? Yes. So the very first thing I did was because I was scared. Like when you have a faith crisis, you think, you you know, you recognize that everyone around you will see that as the plague. It is this thing that you grow up in Mormonism and recognize like that's a shameful thing to have a faith crisis. And you're scared to one, tell anybody to bring their judgment on you. And you're also afraid of rocking the shelf of somebody else. So I didn't tell my wife. I didn't tell the counselors in my bishopric. I didn't tell uh, my friends, which would have been my with the ward members in the ward that I was in. Um, and so what I did do was I said, let's try something because this is getting too hard to bear. I reached out to Elder Holland uh, through an email 
because as a bishop, you have access to all the emails of the top leadership. And so I reached out to Elder Holland. Uh, he was in the middle of some out on a, on, you know, organizing a mission somewhere in another country or something. He sent a little card, uh, and a note, uh, to Marlon K. Jensen, uh, who kind of, if you know all of this faith crisis stuff, if you're swimming in these waters, you recognize that Marlon Jensen used to be the church historian and he was kind of the go-to guy for the brethren to reach out to people and talk to them in their crisis, um, Marlon K. Jensen then called me one day while I was at work, actually just getting ready to leave work and heading on my way home. So on my drive home, I, I, t- I spoke to Elder Jensen for probably about 45 minutes, um, about a 15 minute drive home, pulled in my driveway and sat there for about another half an hour talking to him. Marlon Jensen made it clear that he didn't have any answers to the problems that I was presenting, but essentially to have faith, the Lord would take care of it on the other side and that he cared deeply about those who had such concerns. Bill, do you remember what concerns you were raising to Marlon Jensen in this phone call? It would have been the standard stuff. I would have essentially explained to him like, hey, it's the things everybody else is struggling with. It's trying to recognize that prophets get things wrong and use the priesthood ban as an example. Talk about the book of Abraham. Talk about the fact that the church doesn't tell its stories accurately, such as the seer stone versus the Urim and Thummim. Um, it would have been the standard list. Uh, and, and at this point, the one thing I probably wouldn't have done, cause I'm looking, I'm thinking back to that time and I just wasn't quite there yet. I wouldn't have gone into any kind of space of the church leaders being dishonest and deceptive. That would have come later on. Um, uh, but it certainly would have been around the historical issues. Uh, what year was this? This would have been 2012-ish, I think. So Marlon Jensen was the church historian at the time you were speaking with him. Is that right? I believe so, or just recently put into emeritus status, but still working on some things with the church. Now, you and I know about this. We know about the conversation. We know about the issues. We know that the church really doesn't have any faithful answers to these issues, at least none that are bedded in evidence, fact, and logic. But... In considering it, trying to look at it from an outside point of view for a second, it is really remarkable, Bill, that the church historian of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is talking to you on the phone. You're presenting issues that are not issues that you've discovered. These aren't new issues. These are issues that people have had for some time, and they're issues that Elder Marlon Jensen, the church historian, was aware of, correct? You weren't surprising him and him saying, oh, I never heard of that before, right? No, no, he was very familiar with the issues that I brought up. My guess is at that point, he'd already spoken to a hundred people in crisis, uh, including John Dillon and others, uh, who were, you know, a well aware enough of these issues, at least on the surface, to name them and present the basic problem that this wasn't new to him. This wasn't something he's like, oh, wait, let me look into that. It was, I know what you're talking about, and we don't have answers. Right. So looking at it from this outside point of view, you're talking to a general authority who is the church historian. You're talking to him about issues relating to church history, troubling issues relating to church history, and the church historian has no answers for you. He doesn't have solutions. Um, And his answer, the only answer he gets, and the only answer anybody gives is, you know, I felt a good feeling. It's worth hanging on. It'll work out on the other side. Have faith, Lord loves you. And that's all we've got. And that's what he gave. And at the time, 
it was emotionally supportive because at least somebody was reaching out and saying, this isn't the plague. A lot of people are dealing with this. Um, we don't have good answers. So at least it felt like, hey, my my struggle is real and it's being honored and validated. Um, but again, here as you point out, here's the church historian who should know some church history and he doesn't have any solutions for this. Uh, and I'm happy to go into about a month later, maybe two months later, I get a phone call at work from Elder Holland. And in the meantime, in the background, Elder Jensen and I are emailing each other. I'm sending him my thoughts about how the church can handle these issues better in terms of being honest and transparent and beginning to change the narrative. Um, those are suggestions that I'm making. And Elder Jensen is being uh, validating there as well. He's saying, hey, I'll take this to the curriculum committee. Do you mind if I take these notes into the uh, my meeting with the 12? And so it felt like, and I don't know what happened behind the scenes, but it felt like he sincerely was taking the suggestions I, I was making and taking them to hire up people in the church and those in the church who write the curriculum or decide how we are going to present such things. Um, as that's going on, again, a few months after the initial conversation, Elder Holland reaches out to me at work. His secretary calls me at work and says, I've got Elder Holland on the line. He would like to speak to you. Can you take the phone call? I say, absolutely. So I put it on hold. I run into another office where I've got some privacy. And then Elder Holland and I talk for probably 20 or 30 minutes. And it's the same story. Um, Church is true. Warts and all was one of his quotes uh, in that phone call. But he also said, like, we don't have good solutions. These are things we're working on. There, there's some essays that are going to come out. And these essays will, and he told me at the time, these essays will be uh, a really short essay. And then you can click to read more. And then it'll be a longer essay. And then you can click to read more. And then you get this really long, comprehensive essay. As you can see now, that changed a little bit um, as they worked out those details and again, I think the first essay comes out in 2013. So this definitely would have been about 2012 where this took place. And Elder Holland or El, yeah, Elder Holland gave the, the same response. Like, I don't have any answers for you. I'm not going to solve your problems today. Uh, but in spite of those problems, it's worth hanging on. We'll work it out on the other side. We've all felt good about this thing. So the church is true, warts and all. So now you have the church historian who should be ostensibly the expert on church history who's a general authority who's given you an answer and then you've talked to a senior apostle in the leadership of the LDS church and he has given you the same kind of answer or non-answer answer right it's just it's an emotional answer and not um, not any kind of actual here's a good scholarly response and this solves the problem how did you feel after you got the same answer from Elder Holland? Good or bad or indifferent? So at that time, again, all I wanted was to not be alone. I just didn't want to feel like I was out in this world by myself in this space. So it was validating. But by the time I get done with Elder Holland, we're also having email conversations behind the scenes following that phone call. As we go through that process, I become adeptly aware and again, I don't know what to do with it yet. I don't know how to work with it. But a realization that, wait a minute, if the church historian doesn't have good answers, and if Elder Holland, who I kind of had hoped maybe he talks to Jesus, uh, if he doesn't have good answers, then the reality is we're going to have to live with the fact that this stuff not only doesn't add up, uh, that the critics seem to have a stronger argument on these issues, 
um, but that the church doesn't really have any kind of good response to this stuff. Yeah, I can see this two ways. Number one, you're being reached out to by leaders in the church and in some way that is validating. On the other hand, if you had not had these conversations, you could have lived with the illusion that maybe there really are answers to the questions that the leadership knows and you just haven't found them out yet. Yeah, the curtain was pulled back and it's this grip. And at this time too, like I'm I'm full in on reading stuff on Fair Mormon and, and some of the things going on there. I I kind of knew like we had answers, but those answers don't they're not really satisfying. Like you have to you have to almost go with the less plausible or implausible answer every time to make these things work. And any hope that maybe those guys don't have it right, but the guys at the top who supposedly talk to Jesus, they would have answers. Yeah, that that uh, that mirage, I approached that mirage and it disappeared quickly. What was the next step that happened after this regarding your contacts with church leaders? So once I had conversations with Elder Jensen and Elder Holland, and I had evidence that I had spoke to them, it was then easy for me to go back to my wife and then to my stake president as a bishop, to my stake president, and let him know that this is an issue. And so what I began doing, I, I spoke to my wife. She handled it as perfectly as anybody could. Her response was, then why don't we go church hopping and try something else? When, when I said to her, I don't know if this thing is true, it might not be, and it feels like the evidence points at it not being true. Um, my wife said, let's go try other things. And, and I just want to say, because I know that's not what you're asking about, but I want to say that response was perfect because it gave me the space to stay in knowing that if I ever decided this absolutely wasn't true, I could leave at any moment and my family was coming with me. Um, and so these horror stories of divorce weren't going to hold up for me. Now, when I went to my stake president, what I began to frame this as is there's a lot of people going through this. I'm going through this. We don't handle this very well. I've spoken to Elder Holland and Elder Jensen, so you're not going to shame me. Now, again, those aren't my exact words, but this is the way, this is the contextualizing I'm giving it. Um, you're not going to shame me because I have credibility since I've spoke to these two and these two didn't shame me and they validated that this is real. And I suggested to my stake president that we start to address this stuff in our stake, that we begin to have conversations to help those in our stake who might be going through this. Um, but there were things that he did. He he responded. One of the things I threw out as something he should be aware of was Rough Stone Rolling by Richard Bushman. His son had recommended it to him, and he actually read it, but said that he didn't believe the book was very credible, uh, that it was just one man's opinion, and that he uh, wasn't presenting uh, the data necessarily factually, but perhaps just uh, very opinionated and, and including not necessarily true historical sources. So right away, I knew that this stake president was incapable of honoring what this real space looks like. He, he wasn't going to be able to hold that this history and the problems that come with it are real uh, rubber meets the road kind of issues. But he did make space for me to go into uh, meetings with all of our bishops in a bishop's council at least one time, as well as meeting with a counselor of the stake presidency in his home to share with them what the basic uh, issues of a faith crisis were, why there were issues in the church that caused it, and what some of the solutions could be 
um, in terms of just allowing someone to feel safe, validating them, listening to them, and honoring that these problems are real and they lead people to a loss of faith when they discover them. Was there any upshot from those meetings as far as uh, anything of interest or people changing their minds or listening to what you had to say or pushing back? Uh, in terms of the stake presidency, everybody everybody approached it as there was still a sense that the person having the crisis was the one that was the problem. Um, but luckily, there was some good responses too. There were bishops in that bishop's council, and one specifically, but there were three or four bishops who acknowledged that they were either struggling with this issue themselves, which was two of them, and then two other bishops said that they had uh, members in their ward who were having a faith crisis, and they found the training session extremely helpful. One of those bishops is today, because of that meeting, is today a good friend of mine and still reaches out to me. We just talked actually probably a month and a half ago um, and just talked at length about how he had gone through this same process and no longer held certainty on the church's truth claims. And he was grateful that there was a public conversation going on in our stake uh, that I was pushing for. But in terms of the stake presidency, no, there was, they didn't shame me, but they also didn't uh, lend as much credibility to these issues as the history really imposes that they should have. So here we've got a stake presidency, and this is in Ohio, correct? Yeah, this is uh, Cleveland, Ohio. And they've got a bishop who is raising these issues, and they think the problem is more with the bishop than with the issues. Did they do anything about that? I mean, that is a situation that a stake presidency with that mindset cannot be happy about. Uh, I don't know that they were unhappy. It was more of like, uh, thanks, Brother Real, for sharing this. I'm not sure we really have the time or energy to put into understanding these issues well or in helping other people with this problem. Uh, we've got other things on our plate. That was what I felt came out of that. Again, with the exception of a couple of bishops in that council who experienced it personally and a couple of others who were appreciative of the info, uh, it seemed like the other bishops in that room were the same way. Like, I don't know anything about this. I know the church is true. I don't know what any of this stuff is. I've never looked into any of this, and I've never had this problem, and nobody I know has this problem, so I'm not going to worry about it. What was the next thing to happen? I got burned out as a bishop about four years in, and so I went to my stake president and said, look, this faith crisis thing is really hard. Uh, it's, it's hard for me to work through this, and then also being a bishop and helping everybody else work through their things. And so I said, you probably need to start thinking about... Um, helping make a shift here that someone else is called as bishop. And so about four and a half years in, I was released honorably and a new bishop was called. Uh, I was called as the ward mission leader. Uh, I continued on in that ward uh, until my move to Southern Utah. Um, so that's essentially everything that happened in that uh, stake. And I, once I realized my stake president wasn't exactly safe, I stopped talking to him. And I think this happens across the church. I think we all step back or refuse to have these conversations until we feel somebody is safe. And then once in a while, when we try to enter that space and we see the other person isn't safe, we right away pull back and just know not to go there with that person. There's a story about early New Testament saints. It's not in the New Testament, but there's a story. I don't know if it is real, but that 
New Testament Christians would identify each other surreptitiously to make sure they were safe, and one of them would draw a curved line on the ground with the toe of his foot, and then the other one, if they were safe, would draw another curved line with the toe of his foot, and that would make the shape of the fish, those two curved lines together. So that was like a sign and a counter sign. So the story goes that early Christians used to identify who was safe to talk to. I, I can just tell you just an anecdotal story really quick. Uh, met with a listener here in my store, Family Pond here in Southern Utah. And this listener, uh, his brother and he had both been having a faith crisis over the course of years. And they had interacted with each other numerous times. But both of them didn't think the other person was safe to talk to. So these two brothers didn't share anything with each other until one day one of them is, you know, out on a hike with the other and he says something like, uh, hey, so have you ever heard of polyandry, right? Like testing the waters, like he draws that first curved line. And now the brother sensing, wait a minute, this, this brother of mine is in these waters, then opens himself up and enters the conversation uh, telling what what his story is and what's happened to him over the course of the last few years. And obviously, uh, figuratively drawing the other curved line there. It is so interesting to me because we are both from a tradition, i.e. Mormonism, that is part of the temple endowment, has signs and counter signs so that we can know who are people who can be trusted to speak to. Yeah, we learn that kind of uh, space pretty early on in Mormonism, don't we? Yes, we do. Now, did anything else of significance happen before you moved from Ohio to St. George? Uh, the only thing that comes to mind that seems of no, and again, maybe go back to my own ward. People in my ward respected me. I had a lot of street cred. Uh, they knew I was down to earth. They knew I was intelligent. They knew I'd put the work into learning this stuff and understood Mormonism uh, deeper and more broadly than, than they did. So I never got any pushback really from ward members uh, the new bishop was a counselor to me as I was a bishop, and we have a great friendship. And so while these issues, he thought um, these things weren't as serious as as I thought they were, nobody in my ward tried to silence me. It was It was a comfortable space. If I was still living in Ohio, I probably would still be going to church just because of how good it was. The only note that comes to mind is that as I take this new job in southern Utah, and as I'm leaving that ward very quickly because of the fact that I take this new job. So I give my two weeks notice uh, to my my former company I worked for. And he says, why don't you just pack up your box uh, and just head, pack out your desk and just head out today. So the very next morning, I leave for Southern Utah. So the time of me exploring this job and actually taking it, turning in my notice and leaving is about a week, week and a half, two weeks tops. During that last two weeks in Ohio, my stake president is notified that he's going to be released and uh, is being called uh, as a area authority. Now, I don't know if that means anything. I don't know if there's any connection there at all, but simply to take the stake president of this guy who's now got a podcast, he's had a faith crisis, he's reaching out to general authorities, um, for that guy to be called as an area authority at least makes me wonder what kind of conversations went behind the scenes. But again, that may be nothing. I'm not a conspiracy theorist 
but at least note that that uh, occurred. But that was essentially it for, for my old warden stake back in Ohio. Okay, so tell us about your move. And when did you move to St. George? So this would have been three and a half years ago. Um, I'm trying to think offhand. I think it was November of 2014 where I meet uh, the owner of the company and it's 2015 then probably March when I head uh, here to Southern Utah to St. George. And when I move here, uh, I moved to a ward in Santa Clara and the ward is a, it's a good ward, uh, good people I'm attending. I'm no longer fully literal in my belief. Um, I'm, I'm accepting that many of our stories are not true and at best are myth and that maybe it's a mixed bag at best of true stories and untrue stories. And still hanging on that there's still something to the truth claims of Mormonism. And this ward, uh, I serve as an, uh, a, a ward missionary in the ward and at times filled in the role of an assistant ward mission leader. Uh, the ward mission leader would have me go to meetings when he couldn't go. And, and that was the capacity I served in. The bishop, when I got there, was released very soon after I got there. I think that was already in the works anyway. It has nothing to do with me. New bishop is called. He was a counselor in the bishopric. He's a good guy. He had come over to my house several times to sit with me and to hear what I had to say about these issues and for me to raise concern that we're not very, we're not a very safe space for people who run into these problems and question the uh, veracity of the church. And he was kind, but he also um, didn't really want to deal with this stuff and wished I would stop talking about this stuff. And he had a brother who had left the church over these issues. He had a sister or sister-in-law who was a lesbian and left uh, the church. And so he understood these issues with a little bit of compassion, but also did not want this stuff to infect his ward. He also offered the same solutions, which is, I don't have any answers. I know I feel good about it, so therefore it must be true, but you raise questions for which I cannot answer. Um, and that seemed to hold true the entire time I was in that ward uh, as well. I did meet with that stake president um, on a multitude of occasions, maybe a half dozen to eight or nine times. Why is it that you're meeting with the stake president, Bill? Because Salt Lake is communicating with this stake president that the things I am saying is not sitting well with the church. And when you say saying, do you mean on your podcast or in the ward or both? No, in the podcast as well as in social media uh, like Facebook and other places. So in terms of what I'm saying in the ward, I I don't want to be marginalized in my ward. So I stand up for things when I can, but I'm also not uh i'm not going to be given like you know a 30 minute chance to to speak my piece so you pick and choose your spots and you try to be respectful of everyone in that ward and where they're coming from and why they're there at church that day to simply be nourished and to be able to receive whatever uplifting they can to go through another week whereas i see facebook and in the podcast is different you can ignore me there and hence, maybe I can be a little stronger. But there's no issues with what I'm saying in the ward. As far as I know, 
in terms of bringing any of this attention. It's the things I'm saying on the podcast and it's the thing, things I'm saying probably even more primarily on Facebook. So tell us about these meetings with your state president. This is the state president in the first ward you lived in and the first stake you lived in in Utah, correct? Yeah, up in the Santa Clara Heights. Uh, Santa Clara is a little northwest of the city of St. George. And in uh, in these meetings with this stake president, essentially he would say, look, Salt Lake has asked me to sit down with you and to to meet with you and to see if you they think that you are in apostasy. And so now they've put it on my plate to decide whether you are in apostasy or not. This stake president, again, super kind. He also helped us find our house when we moved to the area. This stake president, uh, after meetings, after reading letters from listeners uh, to the podcast and how the podcast had helped them stay or it helped them keep their marriage together or it helped them to process Mormonism in a more healthy way, he came back and said, I don't think you're an apostasy. And so there's a couple things we have to steer clear of. Um, but otherwise, I, I don't have a problem here. And you can kind of keep doing what you're doing if you can just kind of stay away from these things. Those things, what were those things, yeah, those things are yeah. criticizing leaders, which as you know, RFM, is impossible to stay away from when you recognize the unhealthiness of the things they're saying and doing. Um, the other thing was to not suggest to uh, members outside of your stewardship what they should be doing, saying, asking on Sundays during church. Um, we, again, met maybe six to eight, nine times, and he listened as I presented various issues, and his responses, again, were the same. I don't have good answers for these. You raise good points. Um, I can see why people would have doubts over this, but I felt good about the church. I know it's true, therefore it's true, and all this will just have to work itself out on the other side. Okay, so you continued your podcast and you continued with your comments on social media. Did you make an effort to follow his directions? So I did. I stopped. I had, uh, there was a time before this meeting where these two things were laid out that I can't do. And one of the things that I was doing was putting a post up on Facebook every week around what the lesson was in Sunday school across the church and said, this lesson's great. These are the kinds of questions and things you could raise. Uh, these are the kind of points you could make to help people see that this gets messy. Um, and people will argue that, hey, Bill, you're doing that to shake people. And I wasn't. The point in doing it is to provide support. If people are aware that this gets messy, then you can have compassion for those who have already know it's messy. And people feel so alone in this process and they feel so marginalized and ostracized already just by the nature of having learned this stuff and having questions about it, that I wanted to help them have a safer space. And so that was the point in doing it. But again, I stopped doing it at that point. Um, so that's where the stake president and those above him are concerned about your telling people what to do and what to say and questions to ask at church. Right. The other thing, yes, I tried to step back from being critical of leaders and not necessarily critical of leaders. There's, I, I have to parse this out. When you say critical of leaders, it's one thing if I say like, I don't like Elder Bednar's haircut or I think, uh, you know, 
uh, Richard G. Scott eats too much. You know, those are mean things. And that's being critical of a person as a human being. I think it's a whole nother thing to say what they said does not theologically hold up. It does not doctrinally hold up or what it is can be demonstrably be shown to be unhealthy and to hurt others unnecessarily. Um, and that was difficult to stay away from because there's so much of it in Mormonism. And you can sit, if you're watching, you can sit and watch people be hurt. When you see Elder Oaks give a talk and his talks are anti-homosexual and you see the suicides happen and the post come across your Facebook feed of somebody having taken their life right after his conference talk and that person happened to be a young gay kid, like you can't help but speak out on this unhealthiness. And so that became hard to do. And as time went on, um, I became more bold in saying like, no one's going to silence me. If these guys do something that is unchristlike and hurts people, I'm going to speak truth and power to that. It's an interesting dynamic we have in the LDS church, I think, that once again, from the outside looking in, you would think that people at the top of a church who claim to be apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ and are quite happy to either give the implication or let members live with the implication that they speak on a regular basis with Jesus Christ, that it's the apostles of Jesus Christ, you would think, who would have a greater responsibility to tell the truth and to do good and to not hurt others with their words and with their teachings. And it would be the people at the bottom of that hierarchical pyramid that is established who would have less responsibility for that because their words don't carry the same weight and authority as the apostles. And yet in the LDS church, it seems to be exactly the opposite. The people that we would expect to be the most responsible for what they say end up being the ones who are the least responsible and the ones that the members are not allowed to criticize. Yeah, very true. Very true. So what is the next step that happens now? You've, you're saying that you've gone to church now, you continue to go to church in spite of the fact that your first day president has told you that you need to keep away from these two radioactive areas of criticizing the leaders and telling members of the church what to say, that you feel impelled over time to speak truth to power, to call the leaders on the things that they're saying that are hurtful, harmful, and perhaps less than honest. So where do things go from there? So two things uh, are happening in connection with, and I shouldn't say not connection with each other, but happening at the same time, running parallel with each other. One is that we are finally to a place where we can, we're renting this home in Santa Clara. And now that we've moved there, we've gotten settled in on our jobs. We've got um, things kind of cleared away that we can begin to look for a home. So one thing that's happening is we are now house shopping and looking for a home to buy and make our own. The other thing um, that is happening is that I'm beginning to have the trauma of going to church. And for me, going to church is traumatic, but I've always been this guy, like I'm a tough guy. Uh, I'm an eight on the Enneagram, if that means anything to anybody who's listening. Uh, I'm the, I'm the challenger. I'm, I'm the guy who's, you know, going to stand up and say like, you're hurting someone and that's enough. And up until this point, I'd always been able to do so without it really affecting me. And so this is around the time that I record the episode on spiritual trauma. 
And what I'm noticing is that when I go to church and somebody says something that's hurtful to uh, a, a certain segment that doesn't fit in the church, and let's just use the LGBT segment as an example, when somebody made an anti-homosexual comment in church, I, I still am that guy who's, I'm going to raise my hand and I'm going to tell you that that wasn't okay and that you're hurting people when you say that and that here's the data that makes this more messy and I would suggest that we not talk about such things at church. It's not the right place. But now I'm noticing that when I do that, my hands start to shake. I'm noticing that when I get home after church, I'm having headaches. I'm noticing that I'm not sleeping well. And I'm noticing that like, I just don't feel good inside. And it would take me two or three days to kind of recoup from that. Um, and then by then you're almost to Saturday and now we're getting ready for church again. And so uh, we buy a house we haven't closed on it yet, but we probably have another, whatever, let's say 30 days before we leave. It's December of 2017. And one morning on Sunday, I, I look over at my wife and usually I'm the person in our house who says like, yeah, I know the kids don't really want to go. And I know that you're, you're deep down frustrated with this thing and you don't really want to be there, but um, I want to go. And, and, and if, so if you guys are willing to go, like, let's go. And I would, and, and maybe even more than that, like I'm the guy who's saying like, kids, you got to go to sacrament. You can go home after that. And I would tell my kids they need to go. And I roll over this Sunday uh, in December and I look over at my wife and I say, I can't go anymore. I, I'm done. I can't go. There's, it, it's not healthy for me to be there. Um, I'm not making the difference that I, I, hope to make, which is to make a safe space for people who are going through this. It's not even safe for me to be there. And so I can't do this anymore. And we hadn't been back since then. So we stopped going to church and uh, we buy this home. And so 30 days later, we move into this house. When we move in, I reach out to my new bishop and my new stake president. And I say, Hey, just so you know, I'm Bill Real. Here's what I do. Here's what I say. Here's the kinds of things I talk about. Unless I knew that your ward and stake were safe places to be, uh, I'm highly doubtful that I would would be showing up for that. But you at least need to know that I'm a public voice, and um, you should you deserve a heads up that I'm now on your radar. Uh, in terms of Salt Lake, is probably going to be calling you and. Uh, letting you know that that I'm doing these things outside of church. And the bishop stops by one time with a tin of cookies. Uh, we weren't home at the time. We were supposed to be there, but we were on the back on the way back from uh, a trip in Henderson, Nevada. And there's uh, just one road kind of coming back into Santa Clara that we took that uh, some traffic, uh, it must have been an accident or something, traffic was stopped for a bit. And so we didn't get back home in time to meet with him. He has never tried to meet with us again, other than coming with the stake president one time to our home, which I'll talk about in a moment. But um, I reached out to the stake president as well, never got any kind of response from him. He was released soon after, and a new stake president was called. The new stake president, who is the stake president that I'm now interacting with in the present moment over these disciplinary proceedings... It took him about four months of being the new stake president before he reached out to me and said, okay, Salt Lake's been calling me every month, telling me that I need to meet with you. 
and I just keep putting it off. And so now I'm ready. Um, Can you ahead. give us a time frame for that? So we moved into our house. Um, we took ownership of the home in January. Probably got fully moved in sometime around February. Uh, so now we're talking March, April, May, you know, June of this year when the stake president and I sit down kind of for the first time to have a conversation. Okay. And this is stake president Carnivali, right? This is, yeah, that's him. Right. And I know that you are reluctant to mention his name, but given that he has signed a letter to you for your disciplinary council, which we'll get to here presently, and given the fact that he has conducted himself less than honorably in the contents of that letter, I have no compunction whatsoever about mentioning his name, which anybody could figure out if they just wanted to look up the stake in the church directory. So uh, President Carnivali contacts you now after about four months of being prompted by the leaders of the church in Salt Lake City to meet with you to do something about you. And you meet with him. And the first time you meet with him is maybe May or June of this year, 2018. Yeah. Yep. Tell us about that. So in this meeting, uh, again, compassionate. It feels like he's being kind. Um, he comes to, first he comes to my home and he brings the bishop of the ward with him. Um, I express to him what my concerns are. I had laid out on Facebook about 20 questions that I think point directly at the fact that nobody can answer any of these issues. And it walks people right into the logic of, oh my goodness, I cannot give a good response to that. He said he wasn't going to address those questions, not going to answer those because there weren't good answers. That's his quote, not mine. Um, he expressed that Salt Lake was communicating with him every month, telling him what had happened in the last 30 days that has caused them concern enough to reach out and call him. Um, he made it clear that my post on Facebook about Elder Holland being a liar uh, was not um, was not sitting well with the church at the top. Uh, even though he acknowledged when I shared with him what was said and what the facts were around it, and he said he had some time to sit with it, that he also thought uh, that it appeared Elder Holland was lying and he couldn't figure out why Elder Holland would need to lie about such a thing. Um, in that meeting, he said, like, there's no way we can answer any of this stuff, but... I have a testimony. I feel good about this thing. And so I know it's true. And hence, none of this stuff really matters to me. I'm not a guy who's going to allow the data, uh, the history to shape whether I have a testimony or not, that I have these faith promoting experiences over the course of my life. And so I'm going to believe. And the bishop of the ward, uh, if I can just say one thing, he, he, was less empathetic um, and less concerned about really validating that there was any, any issue here. Um, and I could even see, and again, there were other people in this house at the time we're having this meeting. My wife was there. A couple of friends of ours were over as well uh, during this meeting. And you could see that the stake president was giving looks to the bishop 
and I took those as he was hoping the bishop would be more empathetic, um, more validating in his in his articulation of his side of the conversation. Um, that meeting ended with essentially, you are at risk. Um, you can do a few things. You could resign. That's one of your choices. Uh, you could stop being so vocal publicly, uh, or this is going to end with you being excommunicated. Those are your three choices. And so that meeting ended with me telling him, I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing and I'm not going to resign. And so you're going to need to figure out with Salt Lake what you do from there. Um, he sat down with me again, maybe, I want to say maybe a month later. And by the way, behind the scenes, I'm messaging him and saying like, I would love to sit once a week with you. I'd love to meet regularly with you and have conversations about the things that are weighing on my mind and see if we can address these. Another thing that I mentioned in the home was that uh, he offered that there's got to be a better way to resolve these concerns. I said, beautiful, let's try that. I said, I don't think it's going to work. I don't think they're going to want to answer your questions, but let's send five questions. Let me just pick five questions and let's send those up the ladder. He says, sure, let's try that. Let's give that a shot. And and he seemed to have confidence that that would work. Um, I told him, I don't think it's going to. I think what's going to happen is they're not going to answer your questions and they're going to begin to say things in a way that shame you and marginalize you for even asking. So I write out my five questions. I send them to him. He forwards them up to a 70 who's over uh, the area. So an, I don't know if it was an area authority or a general authority, but a member of the 70. That 70 takes about a week uh, and responds to him and tells him that we're not going to answer these questions, uh, but that these questions are for you to answer, the stake president. Now, imagine RFM. You're a stake president with local stewardship and the church asks you to answer questions which are not local questions. These questions have to do with the collective church. Um, so this is what prompts the second meeting with my stake president where I go back into his office with him and we sit and he says to me that they're not going to answer your questions. Um, I don't even know how to answer your questions, so I'm not going to answer your questions. So your questions aren't going to be able to be answered. I also asked him if he would reach out to Elder Holland and ask Elder Holland directly about the quote that there would be double-digit state creation, that that's going on every week of our lives, and ask him to explain if that's a dishonest statement, if that's true, or why he said it. He originally said he would do that. When we met on this second meeting, he then informed me that he uh, had thought again about it and was not going to send those question, that question on to Elder Holland uh, and wasn't going to proceed that way, which already tells me that whatever happened during that month, that he got some type of uh, instruction from higher up that now made him feel shameful for even asking such a thing to somebody higher than him. He now knew it was no longer safe to ask those things. In the second meeting, he also acknowledged again that it appeared that Elder Holland was lying and that he didn't know why that was happening. Um, my wife was in that meeting with us as well, so she can also verify that that was said. 
Um, that was the second meeting, and that was the last meeting I had with this stake president. Um, I can stop there if you have a question. Otherwise, I can explain what happened after that. I do have a question here, and this involves Elder Holland, because I know Elder Holland, obviously, from what you've said so far, has a special or had a special place in your heart. Number one, he's the apostle that you thought of when you thought back in Ohio, I need to approach somebody who I think is knowledgeable, compassionate, and is most likely to respond to me about my questions about the church. I also know that I did a podcast about Elder Holland and about the, um, well, the less than accurate statement he made about the church growing faster than it's ever grown in the history of the church. In fact, in the history of the world, it's never grown so quickly. And that was part of my uh, Lies, Damn Lies and Statistics podcast, I think. And my impression, Bill, was that when I brought that up, I mean, there are other instances of Elder Holland going off the straight and narrow path when it comes to honesty, but it just seemed to me that that really upset you personally, that you got upset about the fact that Elder Holland was prevaricating, that he wasn't telling the truth, that he was out and out lying, and you seemed to go out of your way to try and come up with some way to explain how this is not a lie. You put it out there to other people. Please explain this to me. Is there some way? You're even actually trying to have a situation where your state president approaches Elder Holland directly, something you're not able to do anymore, apparently, and get his response. Am I correct, number one, that this bothered you personally because of Elder Holland and your, your feelings about him? And number two, how did that make you feel? So two things come up for me when you ask that. One is that if I go back to the original experience with Elder Holland, it felt like he had compassion. It felt like he had concern. And while he didn't have answers, he certainly was offering kindness and validation. But something happened along the way. And it's the, if you remember, it's the instance where Elder Holland is at some, um, some youth meeting or some kind of regional meeting. And he goes on a tirade about those who question the church. And you also used this uh, audio, if I remember right, in that same episode where he's talking about these taffy pullers. And if on one hand to my face, RFM, you act compassionate and loving, and then behind my back, you treat me like I'm a piece of shit for having questions about the church. And excuse my language. When you treat me like I'm some some pain in your butt when I'm some uh, thing that's just just annoying you and you wish I wasn't around. Like that talk, he had anger. He was disrespectful. He was diminishing, marginalizing, and shaming to those who have questions about the church and who can't make it work. When I saw that side of him, I, for the first time, the light bulb went on. And I said, oh, he's not really one of the good guys. He's not really one of the guys who cares. Like, he's frustrated and he doesn't want us around. We annoy him. He sees us as a problem. So from that point forward, I now saw Elder Holland with new eyes. And then that allowed me to start being more critical of what he was saying, to start seeing what he was saying between the lines. Now to the second point. 
when he gets to this claim of double-digit state creation, when I look at that claim, here's what I think. It's such a small thing. Like in my life, RFM, we all have levels of dishonesty. Like all of us do it. We all embellish. We all withhold information. We, we're all doing that intentionally, consciously, unintentionally, unconsciously, we do it. But there's a difference between those who, and I think it, we, we mentally get on these big things, our ego sometimes steps in and says like, oh, you don't want to tell people that you did that. Or, hey, you want to tell people you did that a certain way. When it comes to the small things, like telling people the growth of the church and the meeting that he did, it seems so odd to take this little tiny thing. You don't really need to have your ego get in the way on and to flat out lie about it. And so when I saw that he was willing to lie on things like that, I'm like, oh boy, wow, that says something. There's something going on there. Um, and when I sat with that for a while, like it's, it really bugged me. And I'll be honest, it was your episode, like listening to your episode, I started to realize like, wait a minute, this guy has kind of a history of not being publicly who he is privately and not having the integrity I thought this guy had. Um, and so at that part, at that point, I start to look at him with different eyes. So it starts with criticizing that quote. But as we move into the present moment, it's a realization that Elder Holland seems to lie on a multitude of occasions and seems to do so in order to build testimony in others, but that his commentary is demonstrably dishonest. And when I see that and hear that, um, my integrity calls for me to speak truth to that so that people are not swayed by BS as part of the foundation of their testimony in the church. Interesting. Well, there's an old saying among lawyers that a person who will lie about little things will lie about big things. Yeah. And we sometimes think it's the other way, but I think when someone lies about the unnecessary little things, I grew up with a friend uh, I was a young kid. I'm 12 years old. I live on this little dead end street and there's other kids on the street. And one of them is a good friend of mine. But I soon recognize that every time I tell this kid something that happened in my life, he suddenly has this more extravagant story. And it's these small mundane things. And so I realized really quickly, like this kid lacks integrity. And so as you point out, when someone will lie about the minutia, that sets me back. Like, I think we all lie sometimes about a big thing. We all try to make ourselves look good. We all try to withhold people from seeing our shadows. But when you take the small things and twist them, it points to some serious issue of darkness inside that person. Okay, well, enough about Elder Holland now. Let's go on to your next step in the process with your local church leaders. So I meet with my stake president those two times. And then recently, uh, this Elder Holland episode, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, which goes into five specific instances in which Elder Holland lies and it's demonstrable. Like you have his audio, you have the data, you've got the facts, and it is like unquestionable that he's lying 
at least on three or four of these of five occasions, and almost certainly on all five. That episode had been sitting in the premium feed for a while because I knew that if I released this, this was going to be the episode that was going to bring um, this disciplinary process almost assuredly, even though what I was saying was true. So I finally released this episode and I get an email from my stake president that essentially says, hey, Bill, I'd like to meet with you again. Can I back you up there for just a second, Sure, Bill? please. You know that this episode, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, is waiting to go public. It's already premium, but it's waiting to go public. When it goes public, you are confident that the people who are monitoring you in Salt Lake City are going to know about it, correct? Right. There's no doubt that the Strengthening Church Members Committee still exists um, and that, that my stake president receives reports from them on the things that I say and do. Okay, and you have the ability to take it out of the queue so it doesn't go public, correct? So, yes, um, it's premium. I can make it public at any moment. I'm holding it back for an extended period of time as I am still sorting through my own feelings and trying to decide whether I want to be, um, whether I want to shine a light on Elder Holland's dishonesty uh, at the risk of losing my membership in the church. And so that's the wrestle that's going on inside me over the course of a few months as that sits there. And ultimately, you make the decision to just let it go public and not remove it, correct? I'm not the person who lied. And people base their entire lives on this system. And I think people deserve to have the information to make wise choices about whether they should do that. And I knew I would be punished for pointing out his dishonesty and it just got to the point where I felt like it it needs to go out. People need to know that an apostle, a, a proposed apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only dishonest here or there, he seems to have uh, dishonesty as one of his characteristics. Well, it's interesting that we are in a church, at least currently we're in a church, where the apostles can lie and that seems to be okay. There's no repercussions to them for lying. But if a member points out that they're lying, then the axe falls on the member. Yeah. And Elder Oaks, you know, this has been said over and over again, primarily from Elder Oaks, I think on at least two occasions, where he said that even if the criticism is true, it's wrong to criticize the leaders of the church. Um, that's an odd thing. Like that that is a mechanism that removes accountability and it gives no way to to have any kind of redress of an issue like that. And as this process had worked itself out where my stake president's not going to communicate with Elder Holland, as everyone up to this point is telling me there's not good answers for your questions, the only thing I'm left to do is to be the person who raises their hand and speaks truth to what is going on. Right. They've created a system that has insulated them from any criticism and thereby created the environment where people like you will necessarily appear and challenge them publicly. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah. And that only mode of criticism, they've also lined out as being not okay in this system. Right. Exactly. Hence your podcast and your Facebook page and other podcasts like them which now they are dealing with 
by the old playbook of if they won't get in line, then we will excommunicate them and in some sense try and tar them with the label of apostate with the hope that members of the church will not listen to them anymore. Yeah, absolutely. What happens next now? So this episode goes out. I get the email from my stake president who says he wants to meet with me. I feel, again, nobody in this ward has reached out to me. Bishop's not reaching out to me. The stake president is only reaching out to me every so often. This There's very little interaction going on. So I reach back out to my stake president through email and say, like, I don't want to meet just to meet. I don't want to meet to just check a box because Salt Lake is is calling you and giving you more things than I'm doing. Um, if we, it, we need to lay out some facts too here, RFM. Um, if you go back and look at my Facebook post over the last, say, two months, just go through my feed and compare it to the previous year. I think you'll actually find that I was posting less and I was posting things that were not as pointed as what I was posting before, but this Elder Holland liar, liar, pants on fire would have been the exception. Um, yeah, I would so call I, that a big exception, Bill. It is. It's a big exception, but <laughs> but it comes into play when my stake president in the summons letter here shortly um, begins to say things that aren't actually true. So in this response to him, I say, look, I don't want to meet just to meet, but I'm willing to meet if you have a purpose. And if you have a purpose, could you let me know what that purpose is so that I could come in and be prepared to have the conversation with you. He goes silent. He goes dark. There's no uh, response uh, from him to that. Uh, other than, I, I shouldn't say that. He does send me a short email where he acknowledges he got it, but he doesn't really have a conversation with me. He doesn't reach out again to have another meeting. He doesn't send me an agenda. He doesn't tell me what a purpose is. And so that's the end of it. And um, nothing there happens. Then... What would have been maybe the 14th, the night of the 14th, two men come to my door, knock on the door. It's a younger guy, almost looks like an ironic priesthood holder. Couldn't have been maybe 17 to 25 years old. So I assumed he was an elder, but maybe he was even an older teenager. Um, But these two men, assuming both priesthood holders, knock on my door. Uh, they smile, they shake my hand, and then they hand me this envelope. And it was so weird. Like as Mormons, we're always trying to appear on the surface as Christ-like and happy. And yet these guys know they're there to to do this thing, which is just negative and full of like negative feelings. So they hand me the envelope and uh, close the door. I go upstairs and it's the summons uh, to this disciplinary court. How did you feel when you read that summons? Um, obviously the moment they start to hand over the envelope, I know what it is. I mean, there's, you just know, you know how this process works. So a little bit of anxiety begins to kind of sit in me. Um, but when I open it, then I'm appalled because I expect, I expect to be disciplined at some point for speaking truth to the unhealthiness of this machine. But when I read the letter, my stake president couches the charges in what, I can only call as lies. And and those lies are this. One is he says in the letter, you know, we I had hoped that we would be able to continue working to resolve your concerns. That's not true. He made it clear 
in our two meetings that he could not resolve my concerns, that there were no answers to my questions, and that he wasn't going to try and answer them. Nobody above him was going to try and answer them, and he wouldn't even know where to start in trying to answer them. So he had no no way of even trying to initiate that kind of process. Number two um, was that he said he imposed that I was no longer willing to meet with him. The trouble is, is that I have this hard copy of this email and it's clear from the email, which I've shared parts of it. It's clear from the email that I, on more than one occasion in the message, tell him that I am more than willing to meet further if I simply know what the meeting is about or he has a need to meet me because there's a new issue that's arose. So that was also dishonest. Um, and, and so that becomes like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And as you and I were talking this morning, you said, Bill, do you know why he did that? I said, yeah, absolutely. I know why he did that. The whole reason for him to do that wasn't so that I would feel something when I read that. He knew he was being dishonest to me, but he did that so that Salt Lake would see him as having tried. Like, here's the stake president. He's meeting with Brother Real on a regular basis, and he's trying to resolve Brother Real's concerns, and he wants Salt Lake to know just how good of a stake president he's been. When the reality is it took him four months to meet me the first time, takes him another month to reach out to me again, and then the third meeting is simply to check a box because he doesn't want to give me a purpose, doesn't want to tell me something new has arose. He just he just wants to meet. And as you know, RFM, to sit and hash this stuff out with somebody who has no clue about it, nor do they want to resolve your concerns, nor do they know how to resolve your concerns. Like the meetings just become an extra burden. They just become extra stress and trauma that you feel. And so there's no point in doing it unless there's a point in doing it. And so um, this guy in this summons letter for the first time showed me that he too is willing to be deceptive. He too lacks integrity. He too is willing to change the narrative in order to make him look the best and I'm not going to stand for it. Um, so I reach out to him the next morning and I say, I got your letter. Um, I'm not okay with you lying on these two occasions. You lied about this and you lied about that. And I want you to be responsible to that and accountable to that. And I want you to respond to why you did that. I also asked if he would give me, I said, I know they're going to tell you that I can only speak for 45 minutes. I'm asking for another 45. In, in terms of what's at stake here, if the church is true as you believe, then my salvation's on the line and my eternal ties to my family are on the line. Surely another 45 minutes isn't going to hurt anybody as we work out this process. Um, I also asked if we could move the proceedings to a Saturday instead of a Tuesday night. Tuesday night at 8.30 p.m. when I have to work the next day. So these proceedings are going to last, let's say, an hour and a half. So now here we are at 10 o'clock at night. And if you can imagine the stress that's going to happen that evening, and then for me to go home, go to bed, get a good night's rest, and get up at 6.30 the next morning to head into work. And as you know, you and I talk all the time in the morning. Um, I'm up early, and I'm here at work early. Um, I asked, I said, that seems like that's fair. That seems like that's considerate. The next day, I don't get a response that night. I sent another email later in the day saying, hey, I haven't heard back from you. I'm expecting you to be a gentleman and to respond to the questions I send you. And when I have a concern about this process, I expect you to respond. Nothing. I send him a text the next morning. Nothing. 
Later that next day, I finally get an email back from him. And it's obvious at this point that the church is working side by side with him in working out these responses because the things that are in that response, one of them being, you will have 40 to 60 minutes, which is four times longer than I'm going to speak. That phraseology is the exact same phraseology that was in Sam Young's stuff as well. Um, the time limit given is similar to what was in Sam Young and John DeLynn and Jeremy Runnels and Kate Kelly. So at this point, you fully get, like I fully get, and anybody watching this process who understands these other cases fully gets that the church is now collaborating with him. Every time he gets a request, he's got to go to them, get their feedback on how the response should look. Um, and so he responds and says, we're not going to give you more time. You'll get 40 to 60 minutes, uh, four times longer than I'll speak. And um, we're not going to change the date. We've worked with all the high councilmen. We've worked with the members of the stake presidency to find a date that worked for all of us. Um, and so that's the date we're going to keep. Notice they never asked me, the, the person who's going to receive the most trauma that night, they never asked me what day worked best. And also recognize that the handbook makes clear uh, procedural um, ways in which to call new people to a disciplinary council if certain members of the high council or stake presidency cannot attend. So there is perfect ways to accommodate my situation. Um, but notice that for whatever reason, Tuesday at 830 at night seems to be the best uh, time to sever uh, somebody who's invested their life into this thing from the tribe. Yes. And the impression that I get, and I don't know that it's correct. I can't read their minds, but the impression I get is that we're going to excommunicate you right after Thanksgiving. And we're going to do it on this night, the 27th of November, because you know, we've all got plans. We've all got things to do for Christmas and travel plans, and we can't coordinate it any other night than this night. So that's what it's going to be. Yeah, except as long as the stake president's there, every other person in that disciplinary council can be substituted for, except for him and except for me. And notice that what what actually is for my own healthiness, what actually gives me the time so that I have all day Sunday to process, to sit with, to recover from this whole ordeal, that that is the lowest priority on the entire list. Mm -hmm. No, it's too much trouble for them to get together on a Saturday night for you, Bill. Right, right. And and the, one of the excuses is that, hey, the building's in use. I don't care. Like, I don't have any shame over the fact that I'm going in for speaking to the truth. I don't have any problem if the root, if the whole building is full of other people. There could be kids playing basketball. There could be uh, Relief Society. Me, It doesn't matter to me. Um that high council room, on the other hand, is empty and it's usable and there's nothing stopping us from having it on another night. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there has been in the past few days, I've noticed on Facebook and other areas, a great outpouring of kind words and support for you, Bill. How has that made you feel? So you and I were talking this morning. I, I don't kid myself. Like Mormonism is this minority religion that operates with within the lives of 0.2% of the human population. That even in the United States, it's, it's such a small thing. And the people who are aware of the messiness of Mormonism is, is the small segment of that small segment. So I don't kid myself and think like there's this overwhelming wave of 
people. No, but here's what I do know. That the claim is that I'm working against the church. And what's happened in these responses, and there's been hundreds of them, and they're great, and I appreciate every single one of them. I've tried to respond to most of them, but have not been able to respond to all of them just because of the number of them. People have shared that I've saved their marriage. People have shared that I helped their parents to understand what they were going through. People shared that they would have left the church immediately, but it allowed them to stay and to process and to do it in a much healthier fashion. To each of those stories, like that touches me deeply because that's been the goal all along. I've been, RFM, I've been with people who are out of the church. I've gone to to, to events and things where there are ex-Mormons there. And some of them have processed this in healthy ways. And some of them are still carrying a lot of anger and frustration. And I've heard, I've sat with and seen and heard people say like, I just want to burn this thing down. And I've never felt that way. Like on some level, like this thing's got to change. It has to become more healthy. But I fully realize Mormonism is going to exist in a hundred years. Mormonism is going to exist in 500 years. There's no sense in trying to burn it down. But to make a healthier space where, where the mechanisms are healthier, where it doesn't hurt people the way it does, like that's been my goal all along. And to get the feedback from people that, that they've felt that and that it's worked that way for them has been deeply touching. Um, I haven't gotten any negative feedback at all. Like maybe one comment here or there that just says like, hey, he saw it coming. And this is, this is the rules. This is the way it works. So, you know, sayonara. Um, but 99% of the comments have been beautiful uh, and they've been supportive. And most of them have shown an appreciation for the work that I've done over the last, say, seven years. And that's been deeply touching to know that on some level, the people that I was trying to reach got value out of what I did. Yes, in a way, it's like you get the opportunity to attend your own funeral and hear all the nice things people have to say about you after you've passed. Yeah, yeah. And it and it has been deeply touching to hear all of those things. And specifically, when people say like, this episode turned the corner for me, or this episode I shared with my wife and we were heading towards divorce and now we've got a, a good, healthy, safe marriage. Um, my parents weren't talking to me and this opened up the channels for my parents to to understand me better. Those things, I can't even, I can't even describe how, um, validating, um, how touching those things have been as, as people have written or reached out to me to even sent voice messages. I had one young man send me four or five different voice messages through Facebook where he just said like, my podcast has saved his life. And, uh, being aware that while the LGBT issue isn't the number one issue um, that gets covered in the podcast necessarily, I've also had people reach out to me that, that said that they've been suicidal at times um, and that the podcast has been deep, deeply helpful in giving them a safe space to process without carrying through with that act. And I know that sounds extreme, but that's the reality of the space that we're in. I have read a lot of the comments that have been made overwhelmingly supportive, as you mentioned, but there are some that are not so supportive and they tend to fall into a certain theme. And that theme is that, Bill, look, by your actions, by your beliefs, by your words, by your podcasting, you have essentially rejected 
the leadership of the LDS Church, you've rejected the truth claims of the LDS Church, and you have effectively already excommunicated yourself. So why are you upset in any degree that the church is simply going to make that excommunication that you've already done official in a disciplinary council? How do you respond to that? Unless unless you understand, unless you somehow have the ability to take a step back and to see what it means to belong in a tribe, in a high-demand fundamentalist tribe at that, when you when you grasp the sociology and the psychology of belonging to a group, and that's your language and your symbols that you use to interpret the world, these are the relationships that you've made friends with, this is the value that you offer to these people is that you fit into this tribe. And the moment you don't, the moment you push back, the moment you um, suddenly become other or them, and what kind of shame and trauma come through the mechanisms that keep that us versus them tribalism alive in that system. One can't, until they get that, one can't understand the big deal it is to be kicked out of your tribe. Like I didn't want to leave my tribe. I've never, I've never seen resignation as an option. I, I didn't want to be gone. I knew it was always a possibility, RFM, but I never said like, hey, like, hey, I don't want to be here anymore. Get rid of me. Um, and, and certainly that occupies my thoughts at times. Like you think like, man, this is too hard. Like, wouldn't it just be better to walk away? And yet I've always understood, like, even if I don't fit, even if I don't believe this thing literally, even if I'm pointing and shining a light on the dishonesty of the leaders or the falseness of the, of the tribal narrative, like, I'm still Mormon. These are my people. This is how I learned to look at the world. Like, it's, a, it's like as if you went home one day and you told your family who were all Republican and you walked in the door and you said, hey, I've decided I'm going to be a Democrat. And your family just grabbed suitcases and packed up your stuff and set it outside the front door and said, so long, goodbye. Um, to be kicked out of your tribe is like being kicked out of your family. And you may not agree with everything. And you may see your father as... Um, abusive. You may see your mother as having shadows. You may see your sister as having a drug problem. You may perceive shadows in each of the members of your family, but you still love them. You still, you still are proud to be a member of that family, even if it has its issues. And yet here's the family saying, sorry, you can't be one of us anymore. Like that hurts. And, and I don't think people on the inside when they're in ethnocentricity and they don't quite grasp all the tribal mechanisms because they're inside. It's like a fish being in water and not knowing he's in water. Um, until you sit outside of that perspective, until you can take the perspective of the other or the them and to see what that those mechanisms look like, you can't even begin to grasp the severity of what it means to be excised from your tribe. I know we're running short on time, Bill, and thank you for that answer. But there's one other question I want to ask you in closing. 
It also has to do with comments that are made about your pending disciplinary counsel and what we presume to be excommunication as a fait accompli. There are a number of people who are encouraging you not to attend the disciplinary council, that this simply feeds into the church's idea that they have authority over you and that you should not attend. You should simply resign or resign at the beginning or something else like that. So my two-part question is, why is it that you are decided that you are going to attend this disciplinary council and part two is, what do you hope to accomplish at the disciplinary council by attending? So, good questions. Me, just the human being sitting here in front of this microphone having this conversation with you, I don't want to incur the trauma that's going to come from that night. If it were, um, if it were just based on the health of my well-being... I would resign. I would simply just say like, look, I see where this is heading. I don't have a chance. It's a foregone conclusion that they're excommunicating me. So let's just resign and avoid the hurt and the trauma and the shame and all the other things that are going to come with that process. But that's not the only factor. So there are other people who have gone through this and they have to be silent because if they speak up, they lose the relationships. I'm privileged, RFM. My wife's not going to leave me. My kids completely agree with me. My kids disconnected from this thing before I did. My wife is fully on board with where I'm at. My friends are fully on board with where I'm at. I'm a convert. My parents aren't members of the church. They see the church as doing something bad and barbaric and evil here. Um, I don't. I don't uh, face any loss of relationships. Even my in-laws who are members of the church, they're going to love me regardless. And they've done that thus far through this journey. So I'm privileged in that I can speak truth without having to incur damaged relationships. And there are others who don't have that privilege. And on some level, like I, and again, I don't owe it to anybody. I get that. But on some level, I do owe it to them to walk into that room and to stand and speak truth. And while it comes with some infliction of trauma and harm and shame, it feels like it's the right thing to do, to stand and face these guys and to essentially say, look, this doesn't add up. These things are unhealthy. And I'm speaking truth to that and never have done otherwise, that I've gone through this entire journey with integrity, with being open and vulnerable and being honest and forthright and laying it all on the table and having this tribe then say, that is enough for us to kick you out. You're being honest and vulnerable and authentic and communicating with integrity but because you do so in a way that shines a light on the unhealthiness of this machine, that we can't stand that and that you have to go. And it feels like that's the right, um, that's the right thing to do. And I don't know that I would, and again, everybody has a right to the decision they make. Everybody has a right to do this the way they want to do it. And I honor anybody else's decision 
if they choose to avoid the harm, they just want to go quietly off into the dark. Like they can do it however they want. It doesn't matter to me. For me, it feels like I have to stand up to these guys and speak truth to what's happening and to why I've done what I've done and not let anybody make an assumption about who I am or what my motives are, but to stand up for myself. Now, what do I hope to gain from it? I hope to gain um, the fact that I get to go out on my terms. I get to go out standing up for the thing I've always stood up for. I get to go out talking about the things that I've always talked about. And then these guys get to judge and they do. Um, But it's not really me who's on trial. And it's my hope because everybody who's listened to this podcast for for six months, a year, or all seven years, and there are some who have been uh, with this podcast from the very beginning, um, for them to see like he went in and he told him again that this was messy. He stood up for what he believed in, uh, and these and, and and he did it with integrity. And for them to say like, "Sorry, but you can't be here," feels like it's the right thing for me to do. Now, do I hope that maybe one person in that room has an open heart to saying like, "Hmm, what he said made sense. He seemed to speak to." There being real issues and I'm going to go explore that. I hope so. I really do. Um, but at best, at best, that's all you can hope for is that there's one person in that room who is wanting to know the truth and wanting to, to know if this doesn't add up um, and to know if this is more messy than they thought it was. Uh, but I don't, I don't think that'll happen. I think most Orthodox members don't make space for that in their head. They don't, they don't operate that way. And as it was, you've seen from us talking about every step of the way where leaders don't have good answers and they still hold on to their emotional feelings. I expect the same to be in that room. Um, so am I expecting to win anybody over? No, but to still stand up for what I believe in. Yes. Okay. Well, I certainly wish you the best of luck at your disciplinary hearing, which my understanding is going to be held Tuesday, November 27th at 830 p.m. Now, do you want to give the address for that? So it is uh, 446 East Mangum Road, Washington, Utah, 84780. 446 East Mangum, M-A-N-G-U-M Road, Washington, Utah, 84780. It is just on the eastern side of St. George. It's the next uh, next town over, next city over. Um, 8.30 p.m., which is insane, on a Tuesday night. I expect there will be a number of people turning up to show support for you, Bill. Yeah, and, and I appreciate that. Um, again, I don't have any expectations of any of this, but I would simply say that for those who feel a need to show up, and to support me and to support my family who are going through this right along with me. They're, they're by my side. And this is traumatizing to them too. For those who are willing to be there and say like, hey, you've made a difference. Uh, that means the world to me. And uh, so if anybody shows up, thank you. And if you can't, you don't, that's okay too. Like I get it. It doesn't, that doesn't, um, I, I don't, I don't gain my perception of whether this was of worth or not by whether there are 10 people there or whether there's 2000 people there. Um, but if anybody's there to show their support, it is much appreciated. 
Well, speaking not only for myself, but for myself and for a lot of other people, your podcast has made a huge difference in my life, in my understanding, in my growing awareness, and also in my understanding of stages of faith, Bill. And I fully expect that your podcast, even after November 27th, will continue to make a big change in a lot of people's lives. That's about all for tonight. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon, signing off the air.